0: God is glorious in His saints. Welcome to the Christian Saints Podcast. My name is Dr. Darren Ong, recording from Serpang in Malaysia. In this podcast, we explore the lives of the Christian Saints, from the Anglican, Roman Catholic, and Eastern Orthodox traditions. Today, we commemorate Saint Ini Copuria, founder of the Melanesian Brotherhood. The Melanesian Brotherhood was an Anglican religious order, similar in some ways to the Franciscan or Jesuit orders of the Roman Catholic Church. Melanesia is a chain of islands in the South Pacific, today including the nations of Fiji, Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea. This was an area of the world where the British Empire had a lot of influence, and Anglican missionaries were particularly active there in the early 20th century. In 1932, the Archbishop of Canterbury described the work of the church in Melanesia as the most romantic and the most adventurous of all the missions of the church. Saint Inikopuria was born in this environment on the island of Guadalcanal, which was then part of the British Solomon Islands protectorate. Here is an account of his early life from Margaret Lysett's book, Brothers, the story of the native brotherhood of Melanesia. Inni Kupuria, the first elder brother, was born near Maravovo, on the island of Guadalcanal, in the Solomons group, soon after the beginning of the present century. Guadalcanal is a large island, more easily accessible than some, and therefore He was influenced to a peculiar degree by the forces shaping Melanesian history. He came under Christian influence early, for while quite a child, he was baptised at Maravovo, from a small school for boys to which he belonged. The Inni of these and later school days has been described as a very undersized, narrow-chested, high-shouldered child who never seemed to grow any bigger, with a queer, old-fashioned voice, and a voice that was seldom silent for long. There seems, however, to have been something very attractive about him, and first at St Michael's, Pamoa, and then at Norfolk Island, to which he went from the village school. He was a general favourite, probably not escaping unscathed the temptations inherent in such a privileged position. He seems to have been intelligent, interested in his work, and eager to enter into the varied activities life provided. There is evidence that he possessed depth of personality, a thoughtful disposition, and something of the stuff from which martyrs are made, mixed up with an almost ludicrous sense of childish self-importance which, in a less healthy nature, or with injudicious treatment, might have led to priggishness. The story is told of how Inni once made a vow to keep silence during Lent. On Ash Wednesday, after chapel, he presented himself, contrary to rules, on the veranda, offering in self-conscious silence to the white teacher a letter which must have given him tremendous gratification to write. This explained the nature and strictness of his Lenten vow, and asked that he might be excused, repetition, and questioning in school during the Lenten season, so that he might not be tempted to break it. Probably at bottom there was a pure motive and real desire to give up something that he dearly loved. But a popular little boy could not fail also to find certain satisfaction in the stir such conduct would cause. Another characteristic, prominent in the Inni of later days, is evident in the sequel. The willpower which, consecrated and directed has carried him through many difficulties and dangers since his new work began. The situation was explained to the bishop, who showed Inni the unwisdom of such conduct, suggested methods better because less inconvenient to others of showing his love for and desire to serve God, and release him from the vow. But in vain, Inni refused to speak, and for three days he held out. It might have been obstinacy, but while obstinacy selfishly applied becomes weakness, place on a solid foundation of love and service it can become a driving power capable of resisting or overcoming great obstacles and heavy odds certainly here was a boy who would stand out among his fellows and would probably not tread the ordinary path Due to his talent and obvious gifts of leadership, those around him hoped he would become a teacher. And he surprised them by deciding to be a policeman instead. Inni was not really happy with his time in the police force, but still stood out for his dedication to duty, eventually rising to the rank of sergeant. We hear again, from Margaret Lysett's book. Ini disappointed all those who had set such high hopes on him by enlisting in the native armed constabulary. Yet looking back now in the light of what was to follow, it is hard to say that his step was not the right one. Would St Paul have been the father of so many churches had he not first been the fierce persecutor of the Christ? Would St. Francis have reached such heights of love and compassion, had he not first shrunk from sight of a leper? Would any have become the man he is, and have been enabled to have such wide vision, in particular to see the needs of Melanesians, detribalized by plantation life and government service, had he not himself served in the native police force? Whether it was a stage planned for him, in the divine scheme of things, or merely man's own waywardness, certainly it was an experience which the Holy Spirit has blessed, to the enrichment of the Church, and to the beginning of a work more far-reaching than that of any village teacher, almost inevitably narrowed in some respects by the nature and conditions of his work could have achieved. Melanesia needed not only white men, but also a Melanesian to see beyond the confines of his own village or island. Grace was given to Inni to be the man who should give a lead. His life in the police force was at first unhappy. The strict discipline irked him, and conditions were foreign to his experience. He felt cut off from his old surroundings and heritage in a way in which she had never been at school, where life was as far as possible run on native lines, leaving behind only those things contrary to Christianity, consecrating and continuing what was good in native life. He was impatient and dissatisfied, even to the extent of asking the mission authorities to secure his release from his obligations. This they naturally refused to do, and Inni showed his solid sense by settling down and earning a reputation for smartness and efficiency. The value attached by the police authorities to his influence is shown by an incident which occurred after he had left the service. In 1927, at the height of the excitement caused by the murders on Malar, Inni was asked by the commissioner to return to the police force, in order to go to the island and attempt to put matters straight. The fact that he was asked to do this shows the esteem in which he was held, and his attitude to the request throws fresh light to his character. He explained that he was no longer his own master, and must consult the bishop. To the warden of the college at Siotta, however, he explained himself more clearly. I could not refuse outright but it would be bad for me to go to Mallah with a rifle. I shall probably want to go later with the gospel. We heard from a few episodes ago in this podcast about the famous cannonball moment of St. Ignatius of Loyola. When the soldier Ignatius was struck by a cannonball in battle. And when in recovery, he reoriented his life towards Christ, eventually founding the Jesuit order. Saint Inni has a remarkably similar story. As an injury to his leg, followed by an illness, led him to reevaluate his life. And he ended up founding this order of Melanesian brothers. This account is from a different biography of Inni by Rev. Charles E. Fox. He should have come back to Godakanal as a teacher, as John Stewart, the priest in charge of the island intended. But he joined the native police force, and worked for some years as a police sergeant under Captain Hill, the district officer to whom he was always very loyal loyalty being one of Innie's outstanding characteristics. Then he had a severe illness and, so he used to tell us, a clear vision of Christ, who warned him he was not doing the work he was meant to do. After this, Innie went for a time to Marovovo College with A.I. Hopkins, just the man Innie needed then. Hopkins told me they had long talks about monastic orders, and brotherhoods in the early church, without doubt it was those talks with Hopkins that brought Innie to the decisions as to what he should do. And he went to John Stewart, now Bishop and always his spiritual father, and proposed the founding of a native brotherhood. And Bishop Stewart was the right man to go to, not only because among all the Melanesians he loved, Innie was dearest to him, but because the bishop was a deep believer in religious orders in the church. Years before this, I think about 1907, John Stewart had written to me asking me if I would join him in founding an order of a few priests who would build a monastery in central Malaita on the high hills among the then Wild Bush people whom this band of priests would influence, not by direct teaching, but by the example of their lives, and their continual prayers for the Malaita people. I agreed, but no others were forthcoming, and gradually the idea was given up. But I think nothing gave Bishop Stewart more joy than when any came to him with a somewhat similar plan. I have visited all the villages as a police sergeant, said Innie. And they all know me. Why not go to them now, as a missionary? Together they worked out the rules, Innie's more elaborate ideas being simplified and made workable by the bishop. And then Innie went off to look for brothers. He gathered some together. On St. Simon and St. Jude's Day, 1925 on his own land at Tabalia, which he gave to the mission. He took his life vow before the two bishops, Bishop Stewart and Bishop Molyneux and A.I. Hopkins. The brotherhood began. Let us now read from Richard A. Carter's article. Where God Still Walks in the Garden, Religious Orders and the Development of the Anglican Church in the South Pacific. In this article, Richard Carter spends some time discussing the origin and early work of these Melanesian brothers. Innie received an experience of Christ which was to change his life. He believed that Christ spoke to him and told him that he was not doing the work that Christ wanted him to do. He began to realize God was calling him to start a community of native Solomon Island men who would take the gospel of Christ to all who had not received it. Much of the population of the Solomon Islands lived on remote islands, villages high up in the hills, and bush or coastal villages, with no easy access either by sea or by land. Inicopuria believed the gospel was for all people, and just as he had visited remote villages as a policeman, now he would visit as a missionary. On St. Simon and St. Jude's Day, the 28th of October, 1925, he made his promises renouncing possessions, marriage, and freedom of action. He gave away all his property and a large area of his family's land to the Brotherhood. The following year, the first six brothers joined him. The purpose of the brotherhood was evangelistic, to declare the way of Jesus Christ among the heathen. But as a Melanesian, Kopuria evangelized in a Melanesian way. He sought not to draw the people away from their villages and communities, but to take Christ to them. The coming of Christ should not go hand in hand with the invasion of a foreign culture An individualistic concept of personal salvation, without consideration for one's own people. This was the kind of mission the first bishop and martyr of Melanesia, John Coleridge Patterson, had envisioned. Fifty years before, he had written that his aim was not to make English Christians in white men's clothes, but Melanesian Christians. The secret of these islands is to live together as equals. Let them know that you are not divided from them. The Melanesian Brotherhood did and continues to do just that. Arriving in often hostile villages, they aim to share the life of people in all things. There would be no forced conversion. It was not long before their reputation began to grow. These brothers were prepared to come and stay. They were not frightened of devils and ancestral spirits. Their prayers could drive away fear. People began to speak of their miracles of healing and the signs they had witnessed. The brothers, or Tasiyu, as they became known as in the Mota language, had mana and spiritual power. Many villagers were converted by the brothers. Unfortunately, there were not always priests available to follow up this work of primary evangelism. Today, this community of the Melanesian Brotherhood is still very much loved and respected by the people. In a very real sense, it belongs to them, to Melanesia. Inikopuria was a Melanesian, of whom Melanesians are proud, and in many of the villages throughout the Solomon Islands, you will find men who had been brothers in their youth, and now whose children have become brothers. They receive three years' training as a novice before they are selected by the brothers for admission. While brothers, they must take a promise of poverty, chastity and obedience, but these are temporary vows which can be renewed. Kapuria believed that after five years' service, a man should be free to return to his community and start a family if that was his calling. Released from the community, after a valuable period of service, was not a thing of shame, but to be celebrated at the feast day. Groups called the Companions were set up within each village. Their work was to support the Brotherhood, through prayer and material support, and to follow up the ministry of the Brothers when the Brothers moved on to the next village. The Melanesian Brotherhood have established 27 households in all five provinces of the Solomon Islands. Most of them are small, leaf-roof, working households built in the more remote missionary areas, which will become the base for about four to six brothers for mission and touring. A lot of the brothers' work now involves secondary evangelism, helping to encourage and build up the faith of many, who are still Christian but only in a very nominal way. These barefooted evangelists will tour the remotest villages, lead Sunday schools, youth groups and adult teaching, lead worship and act dramas in the villages and be with the people in all the major events of their lives. Their households aim to become a parable of community life. Here is another account of the missionary work of the Melanesian brothers in a book called Spearhead, The Story of the Melanesian Brotherhood, by Father Brian MacDonald Milne, a former chaplain and tutor of the Brotherhood. With a knapsack on their backs containing their prayer book, Bible, and a few other essential things, they were ready for action anywhere. They usually carried a walking stick which was sometimes used in the casting out of evil spirits from places or people, and sometimes a native umbrella to shield them from the downpours of rain they frequently encountered. When they went into a new area on tour, they were wholly dependent on the goodwill of the people for their food and lodging, and when these were denied, they had to seek for food in the bush, and sometimes make shelters for themselves outside villages until the people would let them come in. In this way, they deliberately followed the example of Jesus and the Apostles when they set out to proclaim their message in Palestine. Usually, they had no money at all, and did not need it. The methods of the brothers were worked out by Inni, partly through his experience in the police working in the bush, and partly through the practical experience of the brothers themselves as they did the work. They never imposed themselves, They went from place to place, explaining their purpose in coming and proclaiming their messages to whoever would listen, but they only remained in a village if they were invited to do so. Sometimes they would visit a place a number of times before such an invitation was given by the chief. Often invitations were received from villagers which they had not visited, but which had heard about their work and were eager or curious to hear their message. They only stayed where they were welcome, and as soon as possible, they tried to make themselves self-supporting if the people gave them a piece of land for a garden, or they worked with the people in their gardens to show that they had come not to impose themselves upon the people or to be fed without working as well. This approach made them very popular and was sometimes contrasted with that of the native clergy or the white people. Who were considered as people of status and therefore less approachable. The brothers were loved as well as respected. They made no claims to formal education, although some of them were well-schooled by the standards of the day and had at first very little training. But their effectiveness arose from their identification with and respect for the people, the simplicity of their message and their whole approach And the way in which they lived the gospel as well as preached it. As in the gospels they went out two by two, never alone, and as far as possible, brothers from different islands went together. This in itself was a symbol of love, because rivalries between islands were still strong, and people from other islands or districts would not normally risk going into the bush with people who in the past might have been traditional enemies. As people became receptive, so the brothers began to give them simple teaching. They had a regular life of prayer, morning, noon, and night, which they kept up wherever they were. And this was often a source of wonder to people who only prayed to the spirits when they considered it necessary. Often the brothers made great efforts to pick up the local language, or they communicated through somebody who knew the local language. And Pigeon English, or mota, both of which the brothers use in their work. They mostly use mota for their prayers. The effectiveness of their methods in some areas did not always meet with the approval of the clergy, who were sometimes jealous of the brothers' influence and the respect and affection they aroused in people. Through them, however, new methods of evangelism. Gradually came to be adopted throughout the church in Melanesia. Ini Kapuria remained head brother until 1940, when he left and married. Unlike many other religious orders, the vows of the Melanesian brothers are not for life. He spent the rest of his days as a village deacon in Guadalcanal until he died in 1945. He is commemorated on June the 6th in the Anglican Church's Calendar of Saints. To this day, the Melanesian brothers continue to be a strong Christian presence in the region. Notably, the brothers were involved in peacemaking efforts following some ethnic tensions in the Solomon Islands in the years 1999 to 2000, leading to the Townsville Peace Agreement. In 2003, seven of the brothers were murdered by a rebel leader who was unhappy with the peace deal. These seven are recognized as martyrs by the Anglican Church, and they are commemorated on April 24th. In the Anglican calendar of saints. On the 20th of February 2004, the Prime Minister of Fiji, Lysenia Karase, presented the Brotherhood with the first prize in the regional category of the Fourth Pacific Human Rights Awards for its sacrifice above the call of duty to protect the vulnerable and build peace and security in the Solomon Islands. During the civil conflict and post-conflict reconstruction. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Christian Saints podcast. Look for the Christian Saints podcast page on Facebook or Instagram, or find us on Twitter at podcast underscore saints. All music in this episode was composed by my good friend, James John Marks of Generative Sounds. Please check out his music at Generative Sounds, JJM. Let us end with the Anglican Collect Prayer for St. Ini Kaporia. Loving God, we bless your name for the witness of Ini Kaporia, founder of the Melanesian Brotherhood. Open our eyes that we, with these Anglican brothers, may establish peace and hope in service to others. For the sake of Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen.